0: Psalm 30, Psalm 30. If you haven't noticed already, there are various kinds and types of psalms recorded for us in the Psalter. There's 150 psalms, and depending on which psalm that you're studying, there are different what the scholars call genres. That's just a fancy word for categories. And so there's various genres or categories of the psalms. There are psalms of thanksgiving, there are psalms of praise, there are psalms of lament and sorrow. There are psalms of imprecation, imprec- imprecation, which means cursing. There are psalms of penitence that are penitential psalms. There are Hallel psalms, which means Hallelujah psalms. There are Egyptian Hallel psalms. There are psalms of ascent, and there are pilgrim psalms. <clears throat> Very often, depending on which psalm you're studying, there will be overlaps in the various categories, <clears throat> Excuse me, which is the case of Psalm number 30. Psalm 30 is a psalm of thanksgiving, but very often in order to have a psalm of thanksgiving, you must also have a psalm of lament, and you have overlaps in these categories, and so while Psalm 30 is a psalm of thanksgiving, it also is a psalm of lament, Because usually when you offer up thanksgiving to God because he has done something, it's because he has heard your sorrow or your lament before him. Notice verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 30. David's lament when he said, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. What is clear from the psalm itself is it begins in verse 2 with David saying, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Apparently, at some point in David's life, he was sick enough to die. But God was faithful and chose to heal them. Evidently, it was a rather dramatic sickness. Notice what he said in the third verse. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from shale. You restored me to life from among those who go down into the pit. And what's interesting about this great psalm is the contrast that we find in it. This is the most pertinent and most striking literary feature of Psalm 30. There are no less than 13 very clear contrasts in Psalm 30. I'll read them for you. You follow along and listen. David said that God lifted him up versus David going down. David said God helped him versus his enemies who gloated over him. David experienced serious sickness versus renewed health. David felt the threat of death and the grave versus life with God. David said, Physical suffering is very imminent in my life, but he also says that he was praising and thanking God for restoration. David contrasts God's anger with God's favor. He also contrasts weeping and rejoicing. David contrasts further the night versus the morning. He says a moment versus a lifetime. David says, I felt secure, but I also felt dismayed. He said, I enjoyed God's favor, but I also felt very often as if God was hiding his face from me. David said, sometimes I was wailing and crying out to God, and other times I was dancing in his presence. He said, I was clothed with sackcloth. But then he said, God clothed me with joy. And what this tells us is that our life in Christ, our life as believers, will be filled with stark contrasts. Have you ever wondered why that is so? Have you ever had a day where you felt as if you were on top of the mountain and then you got bad news from a far country? You got sad tidings, uh, as it says later on in the book of Psalms, and before you knew it, you found yourself in the valley of despair all in the same day. Sometimes we're on the mountain and in the valley in the same hour and maybe even in the same minute. And our life is filled with stark contrast. That is the occasion... Of this great psalm. Let us learn how to offer up praise to God whilst we endure the many contrasting experiences of our life in Christ. Our lives are full of diametric, polar opposite experiences. This psalm puts words to these turbulent times when we feel as if our lives are a roller coaster of diverging circumstances. I have arranged this psalm, or our study this morning, into four major points. Roman numeral number one, the contrasting experience of severe illness and miraculous healing. Roman number two, the contrasting experience of God's wrath and God's favor. Roman numeral number three, the contrasting experience of sin and repentance. Last but not least, Roman numeral number four, the contrasting experience of deep sadness and great joy. So I'll give you those four contrasts that we find in the 30th Psalm again. Number one, contrast of severe illness and miraculous healing. Roman numeral number two, the contrast of God's wrath and God's favor. Number three, the contrasting experiences of our sin and repentance. Roman numeral number four, the contrasting experience of deep sadness and great joy. Severe illness and miraculous healing. In our culture, we speak of when someone has experienced or is experiencing a terrible illness, we say they got one foot in the grave and the other foot on a banana peel. And that's what David says in verse 1. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. He said in verse 2. Oh Lord my God I cried to you for help. And you have healed me. In Psalm 28. Go back to Psalm 28. Remember our study. Verse 1, he says, To you, O Lord, I call, my rock be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me I become like those who go down into the pit. David imagines himself in the 28th Psalm of standing on a great precipice, a great cliff, and behind him is a crag, a rock, a hiding place. And David imagines himself, he says, Lord, he says, if you don't hear my prayer, if you don't answer me, if you don't listen to what I have to say to you, if you don't meet me where I'm at, it's like I'm going to tumble over the side of this great cliff and I'm going to fall down into a bottomless chasm, a great pit. It's a very despairing place that David is in the 28th Psalm. And if it could have gotten even any more darker than it was in Psalm 28, we come into Psalm 30 and David imagines himself that God has now drawn him up. Look at, the, look at the verbiage. Look at this wording. He said in verse number 1, I will extol you for you have drawn me up. The Hebrew word, it's a verb. And it has the idea of when someone goes to a well and they drop a bucket down inside and that bucket disappears down deep below the surface of the earth and it draws back up with their hand this great well and there's water. And the idea here is that David imagined himself as falling down into a bottomless pit into the grave. He was sick unto death. David said, I was so sick in verse 1 that my enemies were standing around waiting for me to die. They were waiting and wishing and wanting for me to perish. And David said, while I was down falling in this horrible pit of Sheol, hell, death, Death, the afterlife, I felt as if I was going to die. God hand delivered me as you would draw up water deep from the earth from a well. David's enemies had already laid him out in his coffin. They're just waiting for old David to kick the bucket so that they could perform their evil deeds. You remember one of the great themes of the book of Psalms is that David is acting as a wall, holding the evil of Israel back. David is constantly preaching who Yahweh Elohim, the the Lord God of Israel. He's saying this is our God, this is what he wants from us. He's teaching the people how to join him in praise song, how to worship God properly. And the enemy, the devil, the world, the flesh is constantly seeking to remove this great king. They want nothing more to to destroy him. And as we know that at some point in David's life, he is going to pass on into eternity and his son will come. And for a little while, the kingdom of Israel will do very well. But Solomon will have two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and those boys will be very wicked and they'll get into a war and the kingdom of Israel will split and there'll be great turmoil and strife in the nation of Israel from that moment on. And the forces of darkness, the enemies of David, the enemies of God, are constantly waiting for David to die so that they can fulfill their evil purposes. They can push their own agenda. They can lead Israel into darkness and despair. David said, God, you hand delivered me. You reach down with your hand like you draw water deep from the earth from a well, and you rescued me. The great Bible commentator, Dr. P.C. Craigie says, and I quote, the occasion for the present act of worship is not merely the assurance that God would answer, but the experience of actual healing because God had already answered. See, in Psalm 30, there's nothing hypothetical. There's no praying in faith in psalm 30 god had answered david's prayer he said lord you healed me past tense we're not told what the sickness and illness was although we'll explore that in just a moment but it was a miraculous healing it was a divine healing it was a supernatural healing it was the hand of god which healed david and david says this specifically I want us to think about something for a brief moment. The marvels of modern medicine. The marvels of modern medicine. We live in a scientific and computer age. And I, in fact, do marvel at the technological advances that have been made. I don't know if I told you this before, but some months ago, uh, my sons and my little daughter, we we liked to watch these documentary programs. And I don't get to do that as much with them as I used to. But I was watching, and now they have these 3D printers. And these 3D printers are quite fascinating. If you've ever seen someone do any kind of work on these 3D printers. And uh, they have surgeons. And what they do is somehow through ultrasound and through MRI technology, the doctors will take a scan of a heart patient's heart and they will program it into the 3D printer and the 3D printer will print an exact duplicate. I mean, we're talking down to uh, millimeter accuracy on these 3D printers. And the surgeons for these very specific surgeries that they have to do, the surgeons will practice on this little 3D printed heart. So that when they, and this 3D printed heart is an exact replica of the actual heart of the patient. And so the surgeons are doing mock surgeries before they even open the patient up, so that when they finally do open them up, they know exactly what it looks like in there. And this is fascinating, this is amazing. But I'm afraid that something is happening in the age of the marveling of modern medicine. David didn't have that luxury. All David had for healing was faith. What begins to happen in the age of modern medicine is we begin to allow our faith to be misplaced we begin to allow our confidence to be sort of jumbled around and we begin to uh, put faith in medicine and in technology. And brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, I submit to you that that is a fallacy. That's an error. We are never to marvel at modern medicine, but rather we are to marvel at the miracles of God in modern medicine. Is there a difference between marveling at modern medicine and marveling at the miracle of God in modern medicine? Yes. Yes. The unredeemed marvel at modern medicine and technology. The unsaved, they just think it's great and wonderful. And if we're not careful, what will happen is that we will allow our confidence, our faith, to be misplaced. We will allow the final resting place of our confidence and our faith to be in doctors and technology and fancy machines and all this other stuff. Rather than in God himself. Don't ever forget that the Bible, well before the marvels of modern medicine, the Bible said that Jesus Christ was the great and good physician. If there are any modern technologies that are incredible and wonderful, it's because God has allowed them to be that way. God created man and woman and the garden to bear his image. And anything that human beings create, it ultimately points not to the creation, the human being, but it points to our creator. These are subtle things but they creep in to our heart, mind, and thinking all the time. We must be very careful brothers and sisters in Christ. Be very careful. It's not technology which heals someone but rather God himself. I had the privilege of one time knowing a missionary. His name was Biju, a wonderful man. He was in seminary with me and he was from northern India. And he was a very colorful person. And he had a ministry that was very unique. He and his cohorts and his partners in ministry, they would go into these remote villages uh, on the border of the Himalayas in Pakistan at the northern furthest reaches of the the country of India. And these were unchurched villages. He said that they would go in and no one had ever heard the name of Jesus ever never seen a Bible, never heard the gospel, didn't even know anything about a Christ. And what they would do is they would drill wells. The people were very ill. They would uh, be drinking stagnant water and very often sickness and so forth. And there was a tremendous amount of demonic oppression amongst these people. Many of them were Hindus. They worshiped cows and chickens and Rocks and trees and just about anything that you could worship, they worship. And Bijou and his brothers and sisters in Christ would come into these villages and they would dig wells and there would be this incredible water that would flow up deep from the earth, pure water. And then they would say, you know, you need to be drinking of the water which never runs dry, the water that can quench your thirst eternally, the water who is Christ Jesus the Lord. And he said it was incredible what God was doing in these northern tribes of India. Many people were coming to faith in Christ through this brother's ministry. And he told me of divine healings. And he said that one time there was a dear lady who came and she had a cancer on the side of her face. On her neck. It was a bulge. And uh, he said that in the meeting that God healed this lady on the spot. Now normally I'm not for faith healers, but faith heals and God heals. And uh, you have to understand that these people had never heard the gospel before. They don't have a Bible in their language. And all they had was the message of Christ and the gospelers that had come to preach to them. And this lady had been miraculously healed. And he told me of many stories and I believed him. This was a dear brother. This was not some, uh, you know, guy that was flying around in a jet as Benny Hinn, you know. That's, that's not who this guy was. He's a pauper. He was a missionary. He was a gospel preacher and a dear brother in Christ, and I got to know him very well. And I asked him one day, I said, Biju, why, why do you see miraculous healing like that in the third world? Why does God choose to do that? in those far away places, out of the way places. And why doesn't God do that more in the United States? And this is what he said to me, I'll never forget. He said, brother, he said, because here, if you're sick, you just go to the doctor. Well, that doesn't sound too awfully profound. And everybody knows that, you know, if you get sick in the United States, we have a very good medical uh, industry, well, mostly. And uh, usually you can get some kind of treatment. At least you can get some relief. And he said, what happens is, is when you have ready access to medical treatment and to doctors, you don't have to depend on God to heal you. You can just go to the doctor and they'll write you a prescription. They'll put you under the machine. They'll take you under the knife. He said, that's why we don't see miraculous healings in the West. And that stuck with me. And still, when I read texts like this, when David said that God healed him from a deathly sickness, an illness, a disease, we're not told what it was, although we can speculate. God did it. All healing flows from God. God is a God of healing. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust, Jesus Christ says. And secondly, the contrasting experience of God's wrath and God's favor. I want to draw your attention to verses four and five. He says, Sing praises to the Lord, all you saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This is probably the most often quoted portion. Of Psalm 30 probably the best known portion of Psalm 30 is verse 5 weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning I want to talk about this In verse 4 it was the miraculous healing that God gave David that caused the heart of David to praise and extol God and then David turns to the saints of God in Israel and he says now Israel Because God is a God of healing, because healing is what God does, the healer is who God is, David now invites the congregation of Israel that would have been waiting for David and listening to David around the tabernacle, he invites them to sing praises to God for what God done for David, And and David is teaching the people of Israel, now Israel, you've seen what God done in my life. I was deathly ill. I was on my deathbed. I had one foot in the grave and another foot on the banana peel. My enemies were waiting for me to die so they could take over and fulfill their evil purposes. God healed me. God restored me with his own hand, David said. And then he turns to Israel and he said, now join me in this praise song. Join me, Israel. And he says to Israel, I want you to praise God for who God is. It's the nature of God to be gracious and merciful and heal. Notice what he said. Verse 8, he said, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. This has said, the mercy, the grace of God. And because God is a God of grace, Because grace is what characterizes God. It's the nature of God to act toward his people in grace. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. Be very, very attentive. Be very careful for praising God for what he does rather than for who God is. Don't ever forget that God does what he does because he is who he is. Is there a difference in praising God for what he does and praising God for who he is? Yes. My wife likes to make me my tea. I have a sip. And it's good. I think this is some sort of pomegranate. I don't know. But it tastes good, and it's warm, and it helps my throat as I'm gonna be speaking in the morning, and it's also got something in it that curbs my appetite. And I need all the appetite curbing I can get. But nevertheless, this tea curbs my appetite, and it helps me to be able to speak better. And if my wife makes me tea, and I say, oh, sweetie, I love you because you make me tea. Sweetie, I appreciate you because of the tea. Oh, extol K. Praise be to K because she is the great tea maker. Well, I'm forgetting something, aren't I? My wife has made me tea as an expression of her heart's love for me. I need to appreciate my wife not because of the tea. That's circumstantial. Although it's nice. It tastes good. It's helpful. I need to love and extol and praise my wife because of who she is as a person. I don't love my wife because of what she does normally. Because I'm flawed, just like you. I love my wife for who she is. And my wife makes me tea because she loves me and we are in a union together. And her tea making is an expression of her deep heart love for me. But what happens if I love my wife because she makes me tea? What if she decides that she doesn't want to make me tea anymore? Can you imagine she'd never do that? Maybe, maybe not. Depending on what kind of day it was. But if I love my wife because she makes me tea, if she ever stops making me tea, then what does that suggest? Well, then that means that my love for her is compromised. And then it exposes my evil heart because I was loving my wife for the wrong reasons. And our relationship with the Lord is the same way God does what He does for us because He is who He is. It's God's nature, it's God's person, it's God's character to act toward His people in healing, mercy, and grace. Here it is. David loves God whether God heals him or not. Whether God gives him what he's asking for, David still loves God, but this psalm is commemorating something that God done. But remember, what God does is based upon who God is. If you think that there's not a difference, I can show you in Psalm 19 where when someone worships God because of what they can get out of him, the Bible says that's idolatry. Somebody says, well, that's not that big a deal. Well, the Bible said in Revelation that idolaters are going to burn in the lake of fire for an eternity. Serious stuff. Number next, verse number five. Mr. Sells, great Bible teacher, co-founder, or at least somewhat, of the Columbia Bible College. In one of his studies, he says, beware of unbiblical nomenclature. And so what I'm going to do is put that in our modern terms, beware of unbiblical cliches. I want you to notice verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Before I'm going to tell you what this verse means, I'm going to tell you what it does not mean. This verse is not saying that in every dark cloud there's a silver lining. This verse does not mean that the good will outweigh the bad. This verse also does not mean that into each life a little rain must fall. I think I might start making bumper stickers. Maybe I'll start making little magnets that hang on. You know you know how we have these little cliches, these things, these cultural things that we sort of trot out, you know? But that's not what David's saying. I'm not saying that in each life a little rain will fall because in your life you will have some heavy thunderstorms, no doubt. And I'm not saying that in the bad things in life that we don't need to look for the good because you do. But that's not what this verse is saying. Let me show you what David means. Look at the very first. He said, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. And then he says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. What does this mean? What David is doing is he's contrasting God's favor and God's disfavor. David's conviction is that God's favor will always outweigh God's disfavor in the life of the genuine believer. God must always render the due reward for our sins. If you sin, God will forgive you, but he won't remove the implications and the ramifications for your sin. I know a little something about that. Just because God has forgiven me, that doesn't mean that what I did in the past doesn't come back to haunt me, because very often it does. And that's the horrifying results of sin. The horrifying results of sin is you never know what the ripple effect will be. And that's why God calls upon us to not sin, because God has promised to remove the punishment for sin. God has promised to forgive us of our sin, but very often God does not remove the results of our sin. God will always render and allow sin to have its due reward. But the moments of God's wrath against us for our sins are just a moment in time. David says that the favor of God is for a lifetime compared to a split second. In other words, before you knew the Lord, God views that as just a blip in time. Just a little dash on the proverbial time scale of eternity. It's not just a lifetime that we experience God's favor. It's for an everlasting lifetime. What does it matter if you have to experience God's wrath and God's disfavor for just a moment if in that you experience God's grace and God's mercy and God's favor for an eternal life? And this is the wonderful reality of being a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. The unbeliever, this world is the only heaven that they will ever know. For the believer, this world is the only hell that we will ever ever know, says Jonathan Edwards. Think about this. And this is what David is saying. He said, God's anger against me for what I did, it only lasted for a brief moment in time, but I've enjoyed God's favor, God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy for a lifetime and on into eternal life. I want to illustrate this point. The moments of God's wrath against us for our sin is brief, momentary, short-lived, and passes very quickly. What remains is God's favor, which will endure for our lifetime, even on out into eternal life. And this was not theoretical for David. This wasn't just some sermon that he heard on Sunday morning. This was reality. Let me show you what I mean. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, I'll ask you to turn there with me. Very often, I've mentioned this before, you know, we speak of David's sin with Bathsheba as that was sort of the end-all, be-all in the life of David, and it was a horrible thing. David committed adultery, he committed murder, and there was a little child that was caught in the crossfire of David's sin, and ultimately three people died because of what David did with Bathsheba. But in 2 Samuel chapter 24, the Bible records a situation where David decides one day that he's going to number the fighting men of Israel. And Joab and David's friends warned David against this and said, David, don't do this. It's vain. It's not godly. God doesn't want you to do this. But David did it anyway. And God was, in fact, very furious at what David did. And God comes to David through the prophet Gad. And he said, David, because you have numbered the fighting men of Israel and you have not trusted me and me alone, I'm going to give you a choice of three punishments. The first one was three years of famine in the land. The second one was three months of defeat on the military battlefield at the hands of David's enemies. And the third one was three days of plague. So God says you can either have three years of famine, three months of being defeated on the battlefield, or three days of plague in the land. And look at what verse 14 says. 2 Samuel 24, verse 14. Then David said to Gad the prophet, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let not me fall into the hand of man. Look at this. Isn't this fascinating David chooses three days of plague in Israel, and that was the wise choice because the Bible said that the destroyer, the death angel of God, wiped out 70,000 men in the first day. And when he came to the city of Jerusalem, the heart of God was grieved, and God decided to act toward Israel and David in mercy. David's choice reflected the conviction that we have in Psalm 30, and it proved to be a wise choice. The plague did fall on Israel. 70,000 men died. Think about that 70,000 men the first day. David is thinking of the merciful character of God in our text. David is not saying, well, in every cloud, you know, there's a silver lining. The good will outweigh the bad. He's not giving out these unbiblical nomenclatures and cliches that, you know, sort of are spout out all the time. That's not what weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning means. It means that God's favor always outweighs his disfavor with regard to his covenant people. Yes, there will be disfavor. Yes, there will be ramifications and implications and results of the bad choices that we make as sinners. But God's favor lasts a lifetime and the wrath of God is for just a moment in our lives. Harry Ironside tells that when his father was dying, he was suffering a great deal. A friend visited him and leaning over said, John, you are suffering terrible, aren't you? And the father did not deny it. He said, I am suffering more than I thought it was possible for anyone to suffer and still live. He said, but one sight of Jesus' blessed face and it will make up for it all. Think about this. This is what it means that weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God's wrath lasts for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. The sufferings of this present time are nothing to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And this is to be our position and our outlook, our viewpoint on our sufferings in this present time. The Christian's ultimate perspective is that faith triumphs strongly over everything else. Harry Ironside's dad said, yes, I am suffering. More than I could ever imagine anyone will suffer, but I'm going to see the face of Jesus And that will greatly outweigh any of my present sufferings. Some Christians suffer more than others. Some Christians suffer a great deal. But what do we say of their circumstances? In the face of their suffering, we need to see our experiences not only in the light of this present world, but in the light of all eternity. And that's what David is saying. Thirdly, the contrasting experience of sin and repentance. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, Psalm 30 and verse 6. He said, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Folks, one of the most dangerous things you could ever say is I shall never be moved. David's sickness... That God healed him from. Was a sin induced sickness. Be very careful because not all sin makes you sick. But sin can and has the potential to make you sick. Rebellion against God definitely can make you sick. Pride and arrogance. Self confidence and self reliance. All can make us sick. Sick unto death. See look. This is how it works. David confesses. In Psalm 30, that his sin was a sin of self-confidence, self-reliance. I shall never be moved. This was the sin that caused David to number the fighting men of Israel. It was pride, self-reliance. One of the greatest sins that a Christian could commit is self-dependence. I know that that's not what we think we live in the land of the free, the home of the brave. If you work hard, you do all that you're supposed to. You dot your I's and you cross your T's and you be a good schoolboy, good schoolgirl. You go through all the motions and behave properly and work hard, etc., etc. Be careful because in that you may fall into the trap of trusting in yourself rather than God. That was David's great sin, wasn't it? David fell into the trap of numbering his army rather than humbly trusting in God. Here are several ways that we exemplify self-confidence rather than God-confidence. Very common in our culture today. Number one, as a people, we trust in our hustle and work ethic to meet our needs rather than God. Folks, all it takes is one illness. You can't work anymore All it takes is a fall on the job site or twisting your ankle in the yard or an unknown illness that causes great sickness in your life. And all of a sudden, you can't work anymore. If you're trusting in your work ethic, if you're trusting in your hustle, you have a misplaced trust. Why do we work? Because God commanded us to. We don't work to meet our needs. God said, by the sweat of your brow, Adam, you shall till the ground and you shall make bread. Work is a command. God has commanded us to work. But God himself is the giver and the meter of our needs. See how subtle these things are. This is not hair splitting. This is the difference between self confidence and God confidence. All David did was, did a, he, you know, we got to have a census. I want to know how many fighting men I've got. And in that, there's a root, a seed of self reliance, self dependence. And 70,000 people died because of that. As a church, we try to advance the kingdom through managing our affairs our secular skills, and our fundraising techniques. I'll never forget the last year of seminary. They had me take these personality tests. You ever had a job do this? This is very common, you know. Myers-Briggs, nothing wrong with a personality test. But folks, listen, God can use anyone regardless of what their personality is. Be very careful with spiritual gifts tests. Because spiritual gifts are spiritual. They're supernaturally given. They're not something that you muster up in and of yourself. They're a gift of God. God supernaturally enables His servants to perform mighty works in His name. I like what Zachariah said. He said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Be very careful with all of these secular ideas that we try to use to advance God's work in God's church. It may just be self-confidence, self-reliance, self-dependence, and it's sin. As a nation, we have confidence in our military might, our political leaders, and our industries. Be very careful with putting your confidence in your military might. Because God will bring the prideful low. Folks, this is right where we live, isn't it? Every moment of every day. We need the message of Psalm 30 to penetrate our hearts deeply. What we need is for God to bring his people to a place of God dependence rather than self-dependence. Be very careful with the term independent Baptist. I am not an independent Baptist. I am a dependent Baptist. If I'm anything. I'm going to leave you on this last point. I appreciate you paying attention this morning. You've done well. Verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11 and 12 of Psalm 30. You have turned from me my mourning into dancing. There's a play on on words in the English. Weeping may endure for a night... But joy comes in the morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. But God has turned our morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, into dancing. From morning to (laughs) morning. Isn't that wonderful? And that's what happens when you have God dependence and not self-dependence. He turns your morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, into a glorious morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. Turn my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Here's the final contrast that I want to leave you with. Singing or silence. Singing or silence. You're either going to use your mouth to sing praises to God because you love him, because of who he is, because of what he has done, or you're going to be silent. How many people remember, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise? I want to ask you a question. What does it matter if you have a thousand tongues if you're not using the one tongue that you have to praise Him right now? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, says Charles Wesley, and he may have had it. But why would God give us a thousand tongues if our single tongue is not giving praise to God? Why do we remain silent at the blessings and the goodness and the glory of God? Why is there not more praise breaking forth in the churches of God? Why don't we sing to the Lord? Well, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We spend far too much time complaining to God rather than complimenting God. We spend far too much time following after what God does rather than who God is. That's the blessing. Did you catch the main application of Psalm 29? The psalmist doesn't ask God for one thing in all of Psalm 29. He just praises God. God deserves to be worshipped and praised for who he is. Stop asking God for so much stuff all the time and just start worshipping God because you love him. There are two results of praising God amidst the many contrasting experiences of life. That's what this psalm is about. Our lives are filled with up and downs, in and outs, good and bads. But when we can learn to praise God throughout all those contrasting experiences of life, two things happen. Number one, God delights in our praise when we ride the roller coaster of life and we still praise him. David praised God in sickness. David praised God in health. David praised God in defeat. David praised God in victory. David praised God all the time. And what happens is when we praise God, we are pleasing to God and our hearts are drawn to Him more. Secondly, we will draw others to God through our praise. Somebody said, How's your prayer life? How's your praise life? In conclusion, Psalm 30 teaches us how to live a life of praise while we endure the many tensions of contrasting experiences. Let's pray. Just a time of brief reflection. No invitation this morning. But if you don't know this incredible God of which David speaks, I submit to you that today is the day of your salvation. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that, was, that stood back in when Paul spoke it and said it and wrote it, and it still stands today. Today is the day of your salvation. Do not sin away your day of grace if you have never been truly born again. But for those of us who are professing Christians, have we learned what it means to praise God while riding the roller coaster of life? Have we learned what it means to praise God in sickness and health and poverty and wealth? Are we constantly saying to God, I'll praise you, Lord, if you do praise. This for me, that for me. David said, Lord, if I die, who's going to be left here to praise you? If I'm put in the grave, I can't sing your glory anymore. Anyone in here would say, Brother Joel, pray for me that I will learn how to praise the Lord amidst the many contrasting experiences of my life. Amidst the highs and lows, the valleys and the mountains, the ins and the outs, the goods and the bads that I'll learn how to praise the Lord irregardless of those circumstances. Anybody at all, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. And Lord, my hand is raised because I need this message just as much as anyone else. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you, dear God, for the example of David. What a man, what a servant of the Lord this man was. Not perfect at all. Far from it. But a man who knew how to rightly give God praise no matter what circumstance he's put in, no matter what experience he's in. Lord, I pray that that would be my lot in life. Lord, I pray that I would be able to learn how to do that. And I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that the preacher also this morning, Lord, would learn these lessons and that the people would learn. Help us now, O God. In Jesus Christ, holy and precious name I pray. Amen. All right. Thank you for being here. God bless you. You are dismissed.